Welcome to podcast number 30 of How to Rocket Your Private Investigations Business. I'm your host, John A. Hoda, and today's date is June 22, 2021. Our guest this week is Grace Elting Castle. Grace was raised on the Solette's Indian Reservation in Oregon and is a fierce protector of Native culture, traditions, stories, natural resources, sacred items, and burial sites. A retired professional investigator, writer, editor, reporter, photographer, she helped plan and was a speaker at the 1998 Wrongful Convictions and the Death Penalty Conference in Chicago. She has participated in the reinvestigation of wrongful convictions and continues to battle to reform our system of justice. Grace is also a debut novelist, and her book is called A Time to Wail. It was given a thumbs up from Michael Carita, a New York Times bestselling author and previously was a private investigator and a guest on this podcast. This is a fun interview with Grace, and I really enjoy it, as she was an editor for me when I wrote uh, magazine articles for PI Magazine. She also was an editor with the National Association of Legal Investigators, The Legal Investigator. It's my pleasure to have Grace on the show. Welcome to my new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, and it features successful private investigators who offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. You will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish a show without asking them to share their favorite detective stories and maybe a few sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather round my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my recently published books for private investigators. How to launch your private investigation business. How to market your private investigation business. And how to boost your private investigation business. It also appears as a three-book set in How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business, the complete series. All can be found at your favorite online retailers in ebook or softcover. Did you know that I also coach private investigators how to survive and thrive in business? Visit my website at www.thepicoach.com. That is thepicoach.com to learn more. Hi, Grace. Welcome to the show. Thanks, John. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, you're quite welcome. I've been wanting to talk to you for quite a while. So I, I want to say this right. It's Willamette and out by Eugene, Oregon. Is that right? Will, yeah. Willamette Valley. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, Eugene, uh, Oregon is in the Willamette Valley and I'm close to Eugene. Gotcha. So how's the weather out there today? It's beautiful. Yeah. Not a drop of rain coming down. And springtime? Yes. Okay. Here in uh, uh, southwestern Connecticut, as I record this uh, today, March the 26th, we are in the first week of spring, and it's a dreary day, uh, but no rain, just uh, overcast and uh, a little cold, but I'll take it. I mean, better than snow, right? So Yes. Anyway, so Grace, we've known each other for, oh my gosh, I guess maybe 10 or 15 years at least, and we'll get to that a little bit later on. But first, I want to ask you, how was it that you got involved with investigations in the first place, and how did you become a private investigator? Well, I think I've, I always was destined to become an investigator from the time I picked up the first Nancy Drew book. Mm. And I was in probably the fifth grade 
in school. I grew up in a little town called Salets, Oregon, which was at that time was a Indian reservation. It's near the coast, just a few miles from the Pacific Ocean. And from there, I went through a lot of different life experiences, but always involved uh, with the things going on on the reservation. The school was on the reservation. My friends were all, and cousins were members of the tribe. And in 1954, the government, U.S. government, terminated the Salets tribe. And so a lot of the people left, and all of our lives changed because the people that we had grown up with, a lot of them had to move away to look for jobs. So my best friend at the time, and mostly through high school and part of grade school, she and I both wanted to be investigators because we loved our Nancy Drew books. And so we always planned that after we graduated, we'd be investigators. And we graduated, and she went off to Oregon State to uh, study. And I soon got married and raised two daughters. So. Oh boy. And then I, in the 1970s, I helped the tribe uh, with their restoration efforts. And they, after a lot of work, they became the second tribe in the United States to be restored to their rights as Indians and as an Indian nation. So after my girls had graduated from high school and went on to what they were going to do with their lives, there was a case that happened in the nearby town. Okay. Got it. Oh boy. <laughs> that that was your first experience? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> No. No, I I I I can understand that.
Well, yeah, it's not digital, right? And uh, was there a licensing requirement uh, in Oregon back then? No. Okay. I just wanted, I just wondered. Okay. And uh, let's just, uh, if you don't mind, that's a name that I know from uh, exoneration work in the greater uh, Chicagoland area. Uh, if you don't mind, just tell me a little bit about Paul and about working with him and how you, and how he worked with you. And, and if you, if he mentored you, just tell me about it. Mm. Okay. Okay.
Oh, I bet. Yeah, especially around Chicagoland, you know. Uh, uh. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And uh, it's kind of in the uh, forefront or the beginning of uh, wrongful conviction exonerations in terms of it being an entity. I mean, there's been, you know, once in a while here and there, but, you know, the cards had really been stacked against uh, appellate attorneys after a conviction to allow any type of investigation to be do done post-conviction. So obviously uh, you were, you and uh, Paul were doing some groundbreaking, uh, groundbreaking stuff, right? That's incredible. That's that's wonderful stuff for sure. So Hmm, still that's fantastic. I really applaud your effort because I know that the type of work involved with uh, wrongful conviction exonerations is not easy. First there's um the voluminous number of records uh, that are from, you know, these cases just in themselves, so they should be voluminous volumes of records. Then there is the record of the trans of trial transcripts and court exhibits. And then on top of that, then there's all the additional work that wasn't done that needs to be done, but now it's being done 5, 10, 15, some case 20, 25, 30 years after the events where, you know, people have moved, they've gotten uh, their names changed. They've gotten married. They've gotten divorced. They've gotten married. It's just very, very difficult work. And to keep it all straight, you know, with the timelines and uh, and then the cat and mouse games with discovery to try to get uh, the, the state, whichever state it is, to grudgingly turn over documents or get them to do some type of DNA testing is just, you know, a big uphill battle, as we both know. So uh, my hat's off to you and that you're still in the game, still doing it. My Lord, that's fantastic. That's great. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't imagine. Yep. And a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Some states, I mean, uh, some states have more open, open record policies than others. And you're right. Voluminous files uh, because of whatever the state's investigation was, plus the uh, previous uh, court actions. But then, the, then the opposite is true too, where you have someone that's convicted, maybe for a capital offense, and the uh, the size of the of the the case file could could be like that of a small magazine, <laughs> you know. And it's like, 
that that's the extent of their investigation. And of course, there's no exculpatory information in there whatsoever. And, and they just, they established probable cause on what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but you find that uh, for some of our listeners that uh, if they have an opportunity to work on, on an innocence project case, it's a great, I don't want to say a way to get your feet wet because you do need to have some experience to work on those kind of cases, but it's a gratifying type of work that uh, will will test all of your investigative abilities. No, I know. I've been fortunate that although although federal in the federal law they still have a um, the death penalty on the books, so it is possible that in Connecticut they could have a, um, a federal execution. But there's been a moratorium on executions in Connecticut for a long time, and although they still have capital offenses and people can still be put on death row, actually carrying it out doesn't take place or hasn't taken place in quite some time. The thought of working on a uh, capital case where it's possible that my client could be executed, I don't know. I, to me, pers- I've never been faced with that situation, but I don't know if I could. That's why you said about the emotional deportment to be able to handle that sort of thing. I don't know if I could, knowing that I might have missed something, that I could have overlooked something, or that the attorney and I weren't you know, working together on the same page. Any number of reasons why, you know, we wouldn't, we weren't able to find all the evidence regarding that case. That I don't know if I could, if I could live with that myself personally. But that must have been a terrible experience to have to sit through a uh, know that your client was executed uh, for a case where you think that he or she may not have uh, committed the crime. That that's that's the ultimate. I can say that that's the ultimate. I can't think of a greater, more difficult uh, situation to be in from an investigative standpoint. So, but, um, I get you. So you were able to turn over all the rocks. 
Okay. You know, and it's surprising that uh, I think Texas leads the country in executions, but for a smaller state, Virginia is right behind them. And it seems like Virginia has a, uh, a high-speed route to get from uh, conviction to execution. They've really uh, legislatively reduced the abilities of um, defense or appellate uh, filings to take place. And they, it just seems like it's, uh, you know, the HOV lane to the death chair down in Virginia. I don't know. Is that, is that your understanding of it as well, or is that just my take on it? No. Uh, although I think one County, uh, Dallas County has, uh, created a conviction integrity unit, but other than that, yes. But other than that, I don't know of any other uh, counties down in Texas that have any, any sort of checks and balances internally within uh, uh, prosecutorial ranks about cases that are uh, that might have a, a certain smell to them, shall I say? And uh, but anyway, so how long were you in Chicago for with Paul? Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> you must have loved that when the, you must have loved that when the UPS guy showed up with a a, a dolly of boxes. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh god, I can just imagine. Now, Grace, at what point did your writing and your private investigative work intersect. So when did you start uh, having some more uh, paid work for doing like editing and writing and that type of thing? Now,
Now, um, grave robbing is something that you mentioned to me before we got on the podcast. And of course, you sent me a copy of the book. And the book is titled A Time to Wail, an Indian country novel. But I, I really didn't understand the importance of it as much because I don't understand the culture. So why is it that grave robbing is, is prevalent or is something that is endemic in the uh, Indian ancestral lands? Oh, my. <laughs> and Wow. Hmm. So the laws of that state only applied to the white people out off the reservation and not within Indian territory or on the reservation. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I was being satirical. I'm sorry. Not <laughs> not uh, legalistic. So but there was also a time when you were involved with, and this is how I got to know you, uh, when you were an editor is that, of a magazine. Can we talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind? Hmm. Would that be uh would that be Jimmy Mises before him? Okay. Uh, I think it was Bob McCowiak. Is that name ring a bell with you? Bob Robert McCowiak. Okay. Go ahead. 
Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where we intersected, uh, I know, because I was asked or I offered to write um, articles for Jimmy and Roe, uh, Rosemary, Rosemary Mises, and you were the editor. And uh, that's the first time I had, uh, well, not the first time I had written for an industry publication, but it's the first time that I dealt with an editor. And it was so, no, it was so pleasant. I have to tell you that you were so gracious and kind that you would come back to me and say, well, there are some things here that you could do to make it stronger. And you pointed some things out, and there was also some uh, ways I could say things better. And you know, every time you came back to me with uh, revisions or or uh, or uh, suggestions, I, I said, "Man, this is the best stuff ever!" Because I felt like I was learning, I could grow, and I could get, become a better writer thanks to you. And I want to I want to give you the first compliment of being my first editor to uh, really help me with my writing. And I really appreciated that. And I wanted to let you know that. So, and I think I always did anyway, when we did back and forth, you know, however we did it, I don't think it was by mail. I think we were finally on email at that point, but uh, really Grace, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed uh, working with you and I enjoyed uh, when I got back my editorial revisions, I knew that it was going to be a better article because of the work that you had done on it. And I wanted to try to make you proud by taking that advice and and making the article stronger. And that's been my attitude ever since with my writing, both in uh, nonfiction and fiction, that my editors are the people there that are help me and to make me a better writer. Uh, And why should I let my ego get in the way of that? Right? So anyhow. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, uh. Mm. That's right. No, you got rock solid credentials and I I never argued with you because when I saw what I had done 
and uh, how it got better, I, I likened it to this. I said, you helped me polish my coal into diamonds. So I always felt that I always felt that way. I might even told you that, but I, I've said that numerous times that my very first editor, which was you, helped me polish my coal into diamonds. So, but you decided, and and after uh, much which with much urgings and proddings from your grandchildren to uh, get the book out, and it's a time to wail. You set your uh, debut mystery within the rural beauty of Oregon's Solette's River Valley. And blending an early history and culture of the tribes now known as the Confederated Tribes of the Siletz Indians. So if you want to talk a little bit about the story and about your protagonist, Ellie Carlisle, the time is yours. I'd, I'd like to hear from you about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's Mm-hmm. And I think he did so. There's another uh, person that I'd like to mention today. His name is uh, Michael Carita. He was on a previous podcast of My Favorite Detective Stories. He's a New York Times bestselling author, and this is what he had to say about A Time to Wail. A Time to Wail is a marvelous novel written with unique empathy and authenticity. Grace Elting Castle uses her firsthand knowledge of both PI work and the reservation life and customs of the Solette's people to create a compelling and insightful read that will call to mind the great Tony Hillerman. So being mentioned in the same breath with, who well, has a long breath, uh, with Michael Carita and Tony Hillerman is quite the uh, compliment to you. And from what I've read of this novel, you have, you learned your, your fiction writing chops. I got to tell you, it really is, it's a nice read and it has a very nice flow. And I think people will find it very, very interesting if they want to learn about all those things while getting a good, well, for lack of a better word, whodunit. So how can people find it? And how can, how can people uh, contact you regarding A Time to Wail, Grace?
That's great. And you wrote this back in uh, 2018, so it's had the chance to get some legs and uh, probably gotten some nice comments from uh, readers and reviewers, I, I take. Yeah. Sure. As I as you were for me, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was a guy that I knew from Don. And then I realized that this PI turned writer was actually a writer that was a PI and, and had been uh, writing well before he got started sleuthing. And, uh, but, but really, realistically, he, he really, in his PI books, there was four in the Luke, uh, Lincoln Perry series that I really, really enjoyed. And he really nailed the private investigator, uh, that noir type of thing that he added to it, uh, those, uh, novels set in Cleveland. But you could just tell that he was a darn good writer. And when I interviewed him, a very gracious guest, really nice. We had a wonderful time. And, you know, because of our common relationship with Natalie and Don, it just worked out so well. And I I count on him as a friend now. We've remained friendly ever since. Uh, But I haven't gotten the courage to ask him for a blurb yet either. So (laughs) someday, but but someday, someday. Anyhow. Grace, this has been wonderful. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I always wanted to interview you. I, I wanted to thank you, and I did so publicly a couple times now, for the great work that you've done with me and probably with a 100 other writers, of which many of them probably are better off as a result of it. And those that aren't, shame on them, because it wasn't you know, for, for a lack of your effort. It was more with their ego. But anyway, A Time to Whale is in the, uh, in, uh, available anywhere you want to get a book. Uh, and online, you can find it, A Time to Whale, uh, an Indian country novel, Grace Elting Castle, private investigator, and still has her hand in, involved with uh, stuff going on around uh, Oregon, and especially with uh, wrongful conviction exonerations. My hat's off to you, Grace. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.thepicoach.com. Our guest next week is Jason Dalgleish. Jason was born on the south coast of England and grew up in Hampshire, the UK. He's worked in the power transmission industry, the retail sector, call centers, and as a night owl in a bakery. He has a degree in history. Following on from the worldwide best-selling Scandinavian noir-like dark 
Yorkshire crime series. He has introduced D.I., that's Detective Inspector, Tom Johnson, in the Hidden Norfolk books, rapidly becoming bestsellers in their own right, the first in the series, One Lost Soul, hit number one in the Amazon charts, and the fifth book, Hear No Evil, was shortlisted for Amazon's prestigious Kindle Storyteller Award in 2020. Jason has seen multiple books top the charts in the USA, Canada, and Australia. He lives in Norfolk with his wife and two small children. This is a fun interview, and you will enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out our website, thepicoach.com, for more episodes, PI coaching services, books, and more. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by this conversation today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please reach out through our website, thepicoach.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.